Welcome to Episode 8 of Matthewlinity, Critical Study of Matthew and Masculinity. In this series, I'll be navigating the world of Matthewan research, identifying assumptions, connecting old and new interpretations, including questions and perspectives previously overlooked or undervalued. There's a whole world of research that awaits. Are you ready? This episode is about what connects the first unit and the second unit in what we usually call Matthew chapter 1, as if they might be intended to function together as a single unit. It's very easy to treat them separately as two distinct literary units, but how are they meant to be connected together as a single unit? And what about Mary? Why does Mary appear in both units? Somehow Mary seems to be connected back to the earlier references to four previous mothers in the genealogy. But what is the connection? This episode will be looking at what kind of connection it is that we find in Matthew chapter 1 between the two units. I'll begin as usual by reading aloud the portion of text. In this case, the entire chapter, Matthew chapter 1. Book of the Progeneration of Jesus Messiah, heir of David, heir of Abraham. Abraham produced Isaac. Isaac produced Jacob. Jacob produced Judah and his brothers. Judah produced Perez and Zerah from Tamar. Perez produced Ezron. Ezron produced Aram. Aram produced Aminadab. Aminadab produced Nason. Nason produced Salmon. Salmon produced Boaz from Rahab. Boaz produced Obed from Ruth. Obed produced Jesse. Jesse produced David the king. David produced Solomon from Hur of Uriah. Solomon produced Reboam. Reboam produced Abiah. Abiah produced Asaph. Asaph produced Josephat. Josephat produced Joram. Joram produced Uziah. Uziah produced Jotham. Jotham produced Ahaz. Ahaz produced Hezekiah. Hezekiah produced Manasseh. Manasseh produced Amos. Amos produced Josiah. Josiah produced Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah produced Silithiel. Silithiel produced Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel produced Abiud. Abiud produced Eliakim. Eliakim produced Azor. Azor produced Zadok. Zadok produced Achim. Achim produced Eliud. Eliud produced Eleazar, Eleazar produced Mathen, Mathen produced Jacob, Jacob produced Joseph, the husband of Mary, from her was produced Jesus, the one called Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham till David are 14 generations, and from David until the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon until the Messiah... 14 generations. The progeneration of the Jesus Messiah was like this. His mother Mary, being betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, 
her having a pregnant belly from the Holy Spirit became apparent. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to shame her, decided he would divorce her quietly. These things having resolved to do, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for the child in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This whole thing happened so that it would be a fulfillment of what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin will have a pregnant belly, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Rising from sleep, Joseph did what he was commanded to do by the angel of the Lord. He took his wife. He was not knowing her up to the time she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. How do we know whether the first two units of Matthew are intended to fit together neatly as a single unit? Like a chapter. We we have Matthew chapter 1, where we have these two units together in Matthew chapter 1. But the chapter divisions that we use today... Well, they were not part of the original publication. They were not added until the 1200s. So it's not until the 13th century that Stephen Langton added the chapter divisions that we use today. So how do we know whether or not these two units are meant to be functioning not just as separate, distinct literary units, but they also function together as a whole? Does the first chapter function as as a whole, as, as a single chapter? Does, does it make sense that we talk about these first two units as if they're a whole single unit? And if so, what what is the evidence that we can say that they're clearly that, that they really clear clearly are meant to be connected? So in this episode I'd like to talk about how the first and second literary units are connected together as a single unit, sharing a specific topic in common. I'd like to point out four kinds of interconnections between the two units. Uh, the, the first one is that there's that providential aspect coming across in both of them. It's not just there in the second unit. I mean, it's quite obvious in the second unit that we have divine factors at work. The divine hand of God uh, is obviously quite strong in the second unit. There's an angel of the Lord. There's scripture. There's the Holy Spirit. So it's quite clear the providential nature of The second unit is quite clear, but it's also there in the first unit. And that's something that verse 17 was pointing out. And that's the purpose of verse 17, is to talk about the timing of the Messiah according to a providential timing. So this providential aspect is also there in the first unit. So that's something that they both share. And the prophecy that Joseph receives in the second unit 
that links back to an earlier prophecy that one of Joseph's ancestors received, and that ancestor is found in the first unit. So King Ahaz is in the middle group of ancestors that's referred to in the first unit. So there's there's a link back between a later heir of David, Joseph, being linked back with an earlier heir of David, King Ahaz. In fact, both units have a very strong dynastic aesthetic, where, where it's about getting to that final messianic heir, the Messiah himself, and that heir is Jesus. Jesus is being identified by the narrator as the final heir, the final messianic heir, the, the Messiah himself. Uh, you might think that, well, that, that's something that occurs lots of times in Matthew, Jesus being identified as Christos, the Messiah. Uh, but, but that language isn't very often used of Jesus throughout the rest of Matthew. It's there in chapter 2, it's there in chapter 11, in chapter 16, there's a couple other places, but it's actually not quite as common as we might expect to have the language there. It might be implied in some way, but to actually have the language, the vocabulary of the Messiah, where the narrator is identifying Jesus as the Messiah, that actually doesn't happen very often throughout Matthew. So the fact that the first unit and the second unit are both identifying Jesus as the Messiah, that's actually a connection between the two units. Another connection is that the first unit and the second unit they both have a heading which sounds suspiciously similar. It's almost the exact same heading. (laughs) So the first unit has a heading, which is the book of the progeneration of Jesus, the Messiah, heir of David, heir of Abraham. And the second unit has a heading in verse 18, which is the Jesus Messiah's progeneration was thus. So both units are about the Progeneration of Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus' Messiahship, uh, uh, pointing out that Jesus is the final heir. But not just that Jesus is the Messiah, but it's about the progeneration of the Messiahship, how Jesus becomes identified as the Messiah, according to the narrator. Now, this link, this connection between the two units, in, in, in both having the same heading, this doesn't seem to be accidental. It doesn't just seem to be a coincidence. Uh, it seems to be an intentional link. It's, it's, it's a way of connecting and saying that they're both apparently talking about or, or doing something very similar. I mean, it would have been very easy to call the second unit something different. Could have just given it a different kind of heading. But in fact, we've got both headings seem to be linked. It seems, but, so, but what's going on here? Verses 18 to 25, somehow it's picking up on the same heading that verse 1 was using What what for the, for the first unit. That, that's not a coincidence. So I think that, that that connection is really worth looking into a bit further. The fact that they both have the same heading, this is something that we might not have noticed in English. If we're just reading it in English, uh, because most English translations, they, they end up making the first unit sound more genealogical and the second unit sound more like it's about Jesus's birth. Except the first unit is just as much about Jesus being born because Jesus is also born in the first unit in verse 16. Uh, it says that Jesus was born from Mary. 
So there's quite an overlap that's going on with the first unit, what the first unit is about, and the second unit, and what the second unit is about. That's something that's worth looking into to figure out what is going on. Why do we find these interconnections? Uh, if, they're, if they're not supposed to be working together as a whole unit, then w- uh, is it just a set of coincidental features that seem to be linking them? Or perhaps we should be studying these connections and thinking, what does it add up to? What are all these interconnections telling us? And now I'd like to talk about the most prominent connection between the two units. In the overlap between what's found in verse 16 and what's found in verse 18. So in verse 16, we were introduced to Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. And the second unit is all about Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Uh, Well, uh, without going into the details of everything that happens in the second unit, we can see that the overlap is Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. They, they appear in both units. Now, we might expect that, well, of course, Jesus appears in both units. He's the final heir. And, of course, Joseph appears in both units as the penultimate heir. Uh, but what about Mary? Why does Mary appear in both units? Okay, so Mary appears in both units. Has that got something to do with the fact that there are previously mothers mentioned earlier on in the first unit? So that it's the fifth time that a mother has been mentioned by the time we get to the final heir, and it mentions that the mother was Mary. Well, is is there some kind of connection with mothers across the two units? Well, the answer is yes, but so far we haven't had anyone explain it to us in a way that can convince many of us. We've got a situation where Matthewan scholars say, well, it seems like there should be some kind of a pattern here. It does seem to be the connection that bridges between these two units, but we don't know for certain what the pattern is because we don't have it clarified for us in the text itself. And so we've got about 50% of Matthewan scholars saying, well, yes, there should be a pattern. We we should be able to find a pattern. We can, if we try hard enough, sure, we can, you know, we can find a pattern. And then the other 50% of scholars are saying, but, but we can't, we can't do it. There, there is no pattern. It does not work. All these mothers don't fit a single template. They're not all the same. There's just too many differences. It doesn't work. There's no pattern. Now, what this reminds me of is the TV game show Jeopardy. So it's a general knowledge quiz show, but it's it sort of swaps the question and answer format around a little bit so that the, the questions sound a bit like answers. And then the, the answers that the t- contestants are expected to give are worded to sound like questions. It's just that to make it sound more interesting. Uh, now, this reminds me of what we've got in Matthew chapter 1, where we've got particular mothers referred to, and, well, 
That's like the clue that the host poses in the form of an answer. And we're wanting to come up with the correct question. The text has an answer, but we don't know what, what the question was. Now, the thing that, that makes this work is the topics. So in the game show, the clue is from a particular category. But if, if, we, if we just heard the clue and we didn't know what category, what topic the, the clue was about, uh, then some of the some of the clues we just wouldn't we just wouldn't know what it's talking about, and so this reminds me of Matthew chapter one, where without knowing the specific category of of where the clue is coming from, uh, we just without the topic we don't know we don't know well how do we find the correct question that the text is providing an answer for. What would be helpful is for us to identify the topic. The text is answering a question, but it's not quite the question that we've been asking because we've been trying to make the text answer the question of what is the same about these particular mothers, but that's not the question that the text is answering. So it would be helpful for us to figure out the topic. What, what kind of category is it? What's the topic? And so for the rest of this episode, I'd like to identify what the topic is. What, what's the category of, of these clues? How, how do we make sense of the topic? What is the pattern in terms of the topic? Because there's been various attempts to choose topics that, that might fit. Uh, for example, it's about race or class or ethnicity or gender or sexual scandal. And you might notice something about these topics. Uh, these are topics that are very much modern topics, modern categories. We like to talk about and think about things according to these kinds of topics. Uh, but what about the, the topics that might have been there for the intended audience to pick up on? What, 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 what might be the pattern that is already in the text? What kind of topic might not be a modern kind of topic. It might not fit our constructions of, of how we would designate a particular topic. And I think what's happened is the usual explanations on these kind of topics, they've been proposed because scholars have thought that there's not an answer already given in the text. And so it's up to us to do our best and to think about our topics and to try to make sense of it because if the text isn't going to tell us, then you know we might as well have a guess and, and try to figure out what we think it might be. But I'm suggesting we don't actually need to guess because the text already tells us. Okay, so I'm suggesting that the text actually tells us the reason why particular mothers are referenced in the genealogy. And I, I think the best way to see this is to begin very simply and, and basically very generally. So, so not trying to figure out the, the complex reasoning for why, 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 why these particular mothers, why not other mothers. That's, that's a very high level kind of question. Uh, it requires a, quite a, a, a quite a high 
level complex kind of answer. Why is, is a high level question. But, but if, if we're starting really generally just about, well, what, what kind of, what kind of references are they? Uh, then, well, we can see that basically they're genealogical references. These are particular mothers of particular heirs. And it can't be that these are heirs that had mothers <laughs> because obviously every heir that's produced comes from a mother. Uh, so it can't be these are the heirs that had mothers. So no, that, that can't be what it is. So, well, generally it's something to do with mothers of the heirs in a messianic genealogy. So this is something genealogical. It's something to do with a royal messianic genealogy and the mothers of these royal heirs are being referenced. So we can see on a basic kind of starting point, we've got a general idea of, of, of the kind of category. Uh, but we can go more specific than that as well. So if we're thinking about what we know from the second unit, uh, we know that Mary appears in the second unit and Jesus is born in the second unit and, and Joseph is there in the second unit um, as the legal father of the heir. So it's about how Joseph's heir, Jesus, becomes Joseph's heir as the final messianic heir. But these same three people, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, had already been introduced at the end of the genealogy in verse 16. So I think we need to take a closer look at this overlap in verse 16, where Jesus, Mary and Joseph are already introduced. So at the end of the genealogy in verse 16, we have Jesus, Mary and Joseph already introduced. But what's interesting is that they're not introduced in the same order as verse 18 introduces them. In fact, we find the exact opposite order. So in verse 16, we find Joseph, Mary, Jesus. Whereas in verse 18, we find Jesus, Mary, Joseph. Now, this is not an accidental thing. Uh, it's not just a random coincidence, uh, as if the writer hasn't really given any thought to the order of, of the words. Um, and I suppose if if we wanted to, to think of the, the probability, if it was just random, then it would be a one in six chance that it would be exactly the reverse order. But it's not just the names that appear in reverse order, which is itself a connection. So we've got the same three people. They, rev they appear in reverse order, but we've got the same identifications. So we've got Jesus is identified uh, in terms of his status as being the final heir, the Messiah. And Mary is identified uh, as Jesus' mother. And Joseph is identified in terms of his relationship to Mary. Now, these same three identifications appear again in verse 18, even though we didn't need to be told again that Jesus is the final heir, the Messiah, uh, Mary is his mother, and Joseph is the one to whom Mary is betrothed in marriage. So it reiterates these same three designations 
that uh, we've already got in verse 16. So this is another sign that we've got this overlapping connection that, that they're being tied together. This, these two units are being tied together. So if we're wanting to study the connection, this is the connection. Joseph married Jesus. Jesus married Joseph. So notice also that these three identifications are all very genealogical. It's the genealogical relationships that are being pointed out. So it's not something else that's being um, pointed out, like, for example, geographical identifiers. So it's Joseph and Mary are not being identified in terms of geography, but they're very genealogical identifications that are that are suited to this kind of genealogy. And notice that in these three identifications, which are relational, ge- genealogical relational identifications, Jesus is the heir, the final heir, and Mary is the mother, and Joseph, well, Joseph's the husband of Mary, there is one identification that isn't included. So notice the identification that's left out. And that is the usual connection that we find elsewhere in the genealogy between father and son, between progenitor and the heir. In other words, instead of identifying Joseph in terms of his role as progenitor who progenerates, Instead, Joseph is identified as the man in relation to the mother, or the husband in relation to the mother of the heir. I'll get back to this difference in a moment. By not specifying the relationship there, how how it worked, it's identified these other relationships, but it's not identifying how the heir becomes the heir. It's not identifying Joseph's role precisely uh, that is the point. That's why it's missing. It's it's in, intended to open up the question of well, well, we don't know how. There's there's a story there. We we don't know what the story is, but there seems to be an opening here for a story. So we can see this interconnection is it's all about verse sixteen. How verse sixteen connects into the second unit, but verse sixteen is already connected back to early occasions when mothers are referred to earlier on in the genealogy. So what we need to do is actually look at the the formula that's used uh, throughout the genealogy and how that changes occasionally by referring also to mothers a total of five times. So we need to think about what is going on in verse 16, not just in terms of how it introduces the the topic of the second unit, uh, but also how it connects back to the four previous occasions where mothers were also referred to. Okay, so just quickly to point out the difference in the formula that is used. So the genealogy begins with a basic formula, the name of the progenitor, and then the verb he progenerated, and then the name of the heir. And that's the basic formula that's established for the first 
few air productions. And, and then we have a new addition. Occasionally, it's just an extension of that formula where it'll say from a mother at the end. So it still has the same word order. Uh, so from a mother is just added at the end. So we've still got the name of the progenitor, the verb he progenerated, the name of the heir, and then it says from, and either the name of a mother, or in the fourth time, it says from her of Uriah, uh, which is identifying the wife of Uriah, which we can identify as Bathsheba. Uh, so in the first three cases, the mother is, is named. The fourth case, the mother is identified in terms of her relation to whose woman or whose wife she is. It's, it's a definite article functioning as a pronoun, which we can translate as woman or wife. So, so basically, we've, we've got the basic formula and then occasionally the extension of the formula. We have an extended formula, which is just the basic formula with from a mother added at the end. Now, when it gets to the fifth and final time where a mother is included, which is the, in the case of the final air production where Mary is included, we have a, a different word order that is going on. Uh, and also, we don't have the verb he pregenerated. We, has, we have a passive form of the verb. So the heir was pregenerated. Uh, so we still have Joseph as the progenitor coming first in, in the place where, where the progenitor is mentioned first. But we have the order swapped around where, with the heir and the mother. That, that order is swapped around. And we have the verb, which is changed from an active verb to a passive verb. So there's basically two things to notice. That's the word order has changed and the verb has changed from an active to a passive. Actually, the third thing that's changed is that it adds the husband of to identify Joseph in relation to Mary. So there's three changes to notice, but really it's only two because it shifts the identification of Joseph as the one who progenerated the heir to the one who is married to the mother of the heir. So those are really the same alteration. Okay, so how do we understand these changes and, and, and how does that affect the, the three connections, the, the relationship between the mother and the heir and at the parental level between the mother and the father and also between the father and the heir? Are there changes? Does that change the kinds of relationships in the final case where Mary is there, well, uh, well, not particularly in terms of like who who are the parents and who are the who is the heir. We still have the legal father and the name of the heir and the mention that there is a, a mother of the heir. We still have the same basic elements. We've got the same three kinds of relationships. In the fifth case, as we did in the first four cases. So we see that there is some kind of a link between these five in terms of they all have this extended aspect of introducing a mother, which creates two kinds of connections that we didn't see earlier on when mothers were not included uh, in the basic formula. Then we just have a, a single linear progression from father to son. But when a mother is referred to, then we have a triangle 
of connections, a triangle of relationships. We have a mother-son connection. We have at the parental level what's going on in terms of the conjugal relationship or the marital relationship, as well as the father-to-the-heir relationship, the father-son relationship. We've got a combination of relationships. We have a triangle of relationships. So Joseph's heir is produced without identifying Joseph as the active producer of his heir. And so it uses the passive form for was produced. It's not that Joseph is completely removed from an active role at all, because obviously in the second unit, he's quite active. What we have is a little gap that's a little opening between understanding how Joseph's heir can be produced if if Joseph is not identified as the active producer of his own heir. And so that's the main thing to notice is that there's a story there that is is being implied that there's some kind of there's some kind of story there that we we aren't being told yet until verse 18 says this is how this is how the final heir was produced this is how it happened this is how Jesus became Joseph's heir this is how it happened this this is the second unit this is the goal in the second unit to to pick up that story and say well this is the story Now, what this means is that the genealogy finishes with a story that we don't know. It's opening up this gap. Uh, It's creating a little bit of a little bit of a question mark about how Joseph and Jesus connect. Uh, Obviously, it connects somehow, but how? So it's opening up this question of how. We don't yet know the story. But what this also means is it's also looking to the previous four cases where mothers were referenced in order to highlight four previous stories, which apparently readers and hearers are expected to know these stories. What this means is we now know the topic for the clue that the clue where we had five mothers referred to in the genealogy, and we were wondering, well, what's the topic? Uh, what kind of clue are we supposed to be thinking of? What what's the category for for this for this clue where some mothers are referred to? Uh, well, the topic is much clearer to be able to see in the second unit. We can see what what kind of topic we can see that it's about how. A particular heir was produced, specifically the final heir, how the final heir was produced, how Jesus became the Messiah as the final, how Jesus became the final heir, how Jesus became Joseph's heir as the final heir, how, how Jesus was produced. This is how, because it, it's, it's quite clearly, this is how, this is how it happened. Uh, and so we find that the first unit, the genealogy, is also on the same topic. It's about how the final heir was was produced, getting to the final heir. And and it's one big story about how heirs are produced. Uh, Lots of little stories about how heirs are produced, but four cases that are being pointed out. Four times where something is being highlighted in how particular heirs were produced. And, And this is why we see the link between the two headings. So the second unit is about how the final heir became the final heir, 
uh, and the first heading is about how the final heir became the final heir. They're both talking about this this bigger story, getting to the final heir, but, but pointing out about how how it happens. They're both pointing out how how particular heirs were produced, which somehow is connected with the final heir and how the final heir was produced. So this means that the topic of how is already being introduced at the end of the first unit, but it also means that the topic of how is probably the same topic that was being introduced throughout the first unit whenever a mother was included in the formula, so the extended formula that not only has the the name of the legal progenitor and the name of the heir, but it also mentions that there was a mother, which itself sounds a little bit strange because obviously every heir has a mother, so it can't be that that these are the heirs that had mothers. It needs to be something about what is going on in the story. It's, It's not just that these are mothers, but that these are stories. They're, they're stories that are being highlighted. So in the second unit, the story that's being highlighted is a story that readers and hearers are not expected to already be familiar with. They're not expected to know this story yet. And what this means is that the four occasions where earlier mothers were previously mentioned, they are four occasions where readers and hearers are expected to know, they are expected to already be familiar with these four stories. So here we have five stories being introduced. The fifth story is the new story, and the four previous stories are stories that readers and hearers are expected to know already, to to already be familiar with. Now, if we take what we know from studying the second unit, we know what kind of story it is. Well, we know for some reason it's focused on Joseph, even though potentially it could have been the story about Mary, but for some reason it doesn't seem to be Mary's story so much as it is about Joseph. It's Joseph's story. All the action is centred around Joseph. The majority of the verbs are attached to Joseph. So if we take what we've learnt from studying the second unit, then we know that it's a story about how Joseph's heir becomes Joseph's heir. Now, isn't that the same pattern that we found earlier on? When mothers were introduced, uh, there was the potential for it to be a story about mothers as co-producers, and yet the intention was still focused on he produced, he produced, he produced. In In four occasions, mothers were referred to, and each of these four previous occasions, it was still apparently about the father-heir relationships. Now, this is the same pattern that we've been studying in the second unit. Mary is there, but apparently it's more about the marital relationship and the father-son relationship. It doesn't seem to be focusing on the mother-son relationship very much. And this is the same pattern in the first four instances where mothers are referred to. It's introducing two new kinds of relationships. Obviously, there's the mother-son relationship, At the parental level, there's what's going on in terms of the marital relationships or or the conjugal relationships. And primarily, what is it that the mothers are highlighting in these four previous occasions? Uh, The stories. The stories of how these heirs became the heirs. This is what's being highlighted. Four stories. Four stories that readers and hearers can be expected to be familiar with.
So the fifth story is the story that we don't yet have explained. It's about to be explained in the second unit. And the first four cases where mothers were referred to, they are stories that we're expected to be familiar with. Okay, so now we have the topic. It's to do with air progeneration, how particular airs were produced. There's five particular airs, and there's something about how these five particular airs were produced. There's a story there. That's the point. Mothers are included to highlight particular stories of how particular airs were produced. But what about the stories that are not being highlighted? The mothers that are being skipped over? Now, if the first four mothers are referred to in order to highlight particular stories of how particular heirs were produced, then it's very interesting to notice what the stories that are not referred to, because obviously there are other stories that are skipped over that readers could be just as familiar with. So I think in order to demonstrate this, it will help if I begin reading from verse 1 up until the mention of the first mother, Tamar. And I would just like to stop constantly and, and to point out what is not there. Because what is not there is just as significant as what is there. So, uh, okay, so here, here we go. Okay, so I'll start reading from verse 1, and I'll keep stopping and starting and commenting on, on what is and is not there. Book of the Progeneration of Jesus the Messiah, heir of David, heir of Abraham. Abraham progenerated Isaac. Isaac, okay, okay, we need to, I need to stop here because here we don't have the mention of Sarah. We don't have the mention of a mother. But at this stage, if it's the first time reading, well, we don't necessarily notice that there's anything missing because, well, we don't know what's coming up. We don't know that mothers are going to be referred to later on. So we don't know that, that Sarah is missing. It could just be a patrilineal genealogy that, that continues father, son, father, son, all, all the way through. But if it's the second time around, we do, we do wonder why is it that the first few mothers are missing if other mothers are going to be mentioned occasionally? So it's very interesting reading a second time around uh, because it really stands out what's not there, what's not included. Why not say that Isaac was the heir that was produced from Sarah? Because obviously there are plenty of stories in the book of Genesis about this process of how Abraham procured Isaac as his heir. So in, when we've got Abraham produced Isaac, we don't have anything about the process. There's no comment about how it happened. How, how did Isaac eventuate as the heir? How, how did that eventuate? There are plenty of stories about this process of how Isaac became the heir and how there was a potential heir prior to Isaac, Ishmael, who was produced from Hagar. Uh, so Isaac is the heir that was produced from Sarah. So why not point that out? Sarah is very dedicated to getting an heir for Abraham, so much so that she says that Abraham should have a child with somebody else 
who is Sarah's maidservant, and so it'll end up being counted as Sarah's child, where it doesn't really work out that way because then Sarah is um, jeopardised in her, her as the primary wife. Seems like she's going to be superseded as the, being the primary wife, wife, and it might not end up look being look looking like it's Sarah's child. This doesn't really work out, but but she's an important part of the story. There's there's many many stories, in fact, that that include Sarah, and so. By not telling us from Sarah, then there's got to be a reason why Sarah is not mentioned. And it needs to be a pretty good reason, because there are plenty of well-known stories that include Sarah in this long, drawn-out process of how Isaac eventually becomes the heir. And it can't just be that they're not well-known stories, because these are stories from the book of Genesis that are just as well-known as when we get eventually when we get to Tamar, as the first mother mentioned. So how Sarah is the mother of Isaac is not a, is not a straightforward case. So it can't be that it's not it's not strange enough, it's not unusual enough, it's not atypical enough. So it can't be either that it's not a well-known story or a series of well-known stories, or that it's not atypical enough or unusual enough. So it cannot be either of those reasons. Anyway, we'll move on to the next progeneration. Okay, so so Abraham progenerated Isaac. Isaac progenerated Jacob. Now, here we go again. We've got we've got no mention of Rebecca uh, and how Rebecca couldn't conceive. She couldn't have children and she really wanted to know from God what's going on. Why can't she conceive? And then she ends up getting a prophecy about how she's going to have children, but the younger twin is going to supersede the older twin. Is that well, that's one story that we that we could have thought of. And then there's later on when Jacob has grown up and Rebecca helps Jacob to become the 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 chosen heir by helping to deceive Isaac, uh, who didn't want Jacob to become the heir. Uh, so there's many stories uh, there as well. And and some of these stories, Rebecca plays a really significant role. So if we're looking for a pattern so far of stories that involve the mothers that are not being included, that are not being referred to here, then what we'd have to say is that there are perhaps too many stories. Well, if Sarah was included, which story, which story was supposed to come to mind? Which, which story? Because there's so many stories. It just seems a little bit overwhelming to be able to know Okay, well, which story in particular? Well, there's, there's lots of there's lots of stories of, of how Jacob, in various ways, ends up superseding his older twin brother. So it just seems like there's just too many stories to choose from. So it seems like that when mothers are mentioned a little bit later on, perhaps these are stories where it is each of these cases that there's a single story that readers can be expected to know. Oh, yes, we know that story. Yeah, yeah, we know how that happened. So this is interesting. We'll, we'll keep going. So uh, Abraham produced Isaac. Isaac produced Jacob. Jacob produced Judah and his brothers. Now, notice that this is the first time that we're being slowed down. We're, we're physically being slowed down by not just hearing the mention of the heir, but that the heir, Judah, has brothers. So Jacob produced Jacob produced Judah, 
and his brothers. Now, we could probably think of many reasons why it might say, and his brothers. Um, well, one reason is probably to do with later on, where the phrase also is mentioned later on, and his brothers is, is also mentioned later on in the genealogies. There's probably some link there. But another reason is that so far up until now, the inheritance has not been very shared. Uh, and But when we get to Judah and his brothers, then there, that is a shared inheritance. So that's probably one reason that, that it would mention and his brothers. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'll keep reading. Uh, here we go. So um, Jacob produced Judah and his brothers. Judah produced Perez and Zerah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on. Why mention the name of of another heir, a name of, of, a, of a brother? There's nowhere else in the genealogy where a brother is named. So this is interesting that for a second time, we're being slowed down around Judah. We had Judah and his brothers, and now we have Judah produced Perez and Zerah. So this is very interesting that we're being slowed down for a second time around Judah. And we're about to be slowed down for a third time because the mention of a first mother is, is coming up. So it says Judah produced Perez and Zerah from Tamar. So not only did we find out that Judah has brothers and that Judah produced two heirs and that they're both being named, but we now are being told who the mother of the heirs was. Now this is very interesting. Because what happens grammatically when from a mother is added, when it says from Tamar, that modifies something about the verb and, and how the subject of the verb produced. So how, in this case, Judah produced Perez and Zerah? Well, that was from Tamar. So from Tamar modifies something about the verb. It tells us something about how. Now, this is something that we've already suspected that this might be the case. Because in the fifth case, when it says from Mary, it was seemed to be also highlighting the absence of the how. How was, how was the heir of Joseph produced? And so here we go. The first four cases, well, the first case where a mother is mentioned, we can see that how Judah produced Perez and Zerah from Tamar. Well, that's, that's how it happened. That's how Judah's heirs were produced. So in other words, it's referring to a particular story from the book of Genesis. In fact, there's an entire chapter dedicated to that very story. So it's pointing out a story, and that story is found in Genesis chapter 38. And in fact, Genesis chapter 38 could just as well have been called How Judah Produced Perez and Zerah from Tamar. That's the entire chapter. It's a single contained story. So readers are ex 
are being expected to recall Genesis chapter 38. They're expected to be familiar with this single story. And so this is what I'll be able to start doing next time in episode 9, is to begin to unpack what is it that we're expected to notice about how Judah produced Perez and Zerah from Tamar, and how is that relevant to to Matthew chapter 1, and how the final case, the final heir, was produced from Mary. So this time, what I've been able to establish so far is that, yes, there is a connection between the two units, and it's related to how heirs were produced. This episode, I've been using a technique that some people call reading backwards. Uh, there are other, other things that we could call it. We could also call it spoiler reading. And it's where we know what's coming up, because uh, we've, we've already read it before. We know, we know what's in the second part of Matthew chapter 1. We know the story unit about Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and Joseph almost divorcing Mary uh, because he knows the child's not his, and, and then there's an angel that tells him to, to go ahead, and it's okay. And we, we know this story unit. So when we, if we go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 1 and read the first unit, the genealogy, Apparently, we have five stories being highlighted within the genealogy. Five stories about how particular heirs were produced. In the fifth case, it's an unfamiliar story. How the final heir from Mary became Joseph's heir is the question opened up at the end of the genealogy. And it's the same topic already introduced four times. The question of how is already the topic hinted at four times previously in the genealogy. How Judas and Selmons and Boaz's and David's heirs were produced from Tamar, from Rahab, from Ruth, from Uriah's Bathsheba. This is the topic already pointed out four times. Now that we know what the topic is of these five references, now that we know that they are references to five stories about how particular heirs were produced, it's easier to understand why both units utilised the same heading. The second story unit had the same heading as the first story unit, as the genealogy, because they are both dealing with the same topic of how particular heirs were produced leading up to the final heir and how the final heir was produced. In this episode, I haven't got around to unpacking what the pattern is, just establishing the fact that there is some pattern and what kind of pattern it is. What, what kind of topic are we supposed to be fitting in, in these, these particular stories? And so next time, I'll be able to begin to unpack what the pattern is by looking at the first case where a mother is referred to and, and look at the story of how Judah produced Perez and Zerah from Tamar. And what relevance does that have for Matthew chapter 1? What is it that readers and hearers are expected to notice that, that's so relevant for understanding Matthew chapter 1 and, and how the final heir Jesus was produced from Mary? And hopefully uh, we're really ready to know now, well, 
what how does it work what what is this pattern and so that's what we'll begin uh, looking at next time in episode nine that's it for this episode thank you for listening